Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 17 states this. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. As we continue in our worldview series, The Story of Reality, today we want to tackle that question about origins. It's the first question, really. Where did we come from? That question in and of itself brings up a whole lot of tension in our day, doesn't it? People say, how can you, as an educated 21st century person, believe in this ancient claim that there is a God who made the universe? That's the question we want to ask and answer in our time today. But first, I want to tell you a story about Star Trek The Next Generation. In one episode, the Starship Enterprise is exploring another planet and looking for signs of life. They actually find a strange kind of living crystal there that appears to have some sort of intelligence. And and this weird life form tries to send a message and communicate something back to the ship. But Captain Picard doesn't know what they're trying to say until the Universal Translator comes online and translates one of the phrases as ugly giant bags of mostly water. Ugly giant bags of mostly water. Captain Picard is perplexed. He is confused at what they are saying. Uh, He has no idea, and as is typical, uh, no one knows what's going on until Data explains it to them. And Data indicates that these crystals are describing them. Uh, that that phrase is an accurate description of human physiology. After all, data points out that human beings are 90% water surrounded by a flexible container. Is that an accurate description of a human being? Are you and I merely an ugly giant bag of mostly water? This is actually the articulation of a very popular worldview today known as naturalistic materialism. You'll recall Pastor Bob last week kicked us off in our series through uh, these worldview questions, and uh, what he said was everybody has a worldview. Worldviews are like belly buttons. You all have a worldview. You may not know what your worldview is. People may not realize that, but it's like a fish living in water, not realizing that they're wet. Everybody has a worldview. A worldview is just your way of viewing the world. Uh, This worldview is the worldview that everything that is can be explained by natural causes and that everything that exists is material. Now, that's one version of the story of reality. It's quite a popular version. It's the version I was taught in public schools here in New Jersey. Matter is all there is. There is no spiritual realm. There is no supernatural phenomenon. And there certainly is no creator God. As a kind of modern spokesman for this worldview, I present to you Exhibit A, Lawrence Krauss. He says, you are all stardust. Krauss is a physicist and a college professor. He's an advocate for the public understanding of science, and he is an anti-theist. Krauss seeks to reduce the influence of what he regards as superstition and religious dogma in our pop culture. Listen to what he said in a recent talk. Quote, the amazing thing is that every atom in your body came from a star that exploded. And the atoms in your left hand probably came from a different star than the atoms in your right hand. 
It really is the most poetic thing I know about physics, he says. You are all stardust. You couldn't be here if stars hadn't exploded. Because the elements, the carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, iron, all the things that matter for evolution weren't created at the beginning of time. They were created in the nuclear furnace of stars. And the only way they can get into your body is if the stars were kind enough to explode. So, he says, forget Jesus. The stars died so that you could be here today. Forget Jesus. The stars died so that you could be here today. Forget Jesus. It's the stars who die so that you could be here today. Now, I'm not so sure what exactly is more sad here. The fact that he believes that, the fact that he articulated that, or the fact that when he said that last line, the audience of Americans burst into applause. How would you respond to somebody who engages you with this kind of worldview? A part of our goal in this series is to equip you to be able to have an intelligent conversation with somebody who comes from a different worldview. And maybe you've had this experience like I've had. You're at a gathering somewhere, maybe you're at a party, maybe you're at a barbecue, you're at some place, and uh, every once in a while, like somebody takes a shot. They take a shot at Christianity. And, you know, something like this on the screen. It's not a long thing, it's almost like kind of hit and run. And they're not asking to have a long conversation with you. They just say this thing like it's no big deal, but that little comment they made was a really big deal to you because like in two seconds, they just demolished your entire worldview and it kind of threw you off balance and you're like standing there after they said that. You're like, what, what, what just happened? And uh, what did they say? And what did, what did I, how come I didn't say anything? And oftentimes the reason why we don't say anything is because we're not prepared to say anything. And so what I want to do for you this morning is just to help you be prepared for those kind of moments, because they do come in your life. And I want to compare and contrast the worldview of naturalistic materialism with the worldview of Christianity using primarily the book of Colossians. As we learned last week, Paul wrote the book of Colossians to interact with those who come from a different worldview. And I want to give you three key things to remember, just three things, just three key issues to bring to the conversation. They're very easy to remember. You might even want to write them down or take a picture of the screen right here so that you can remember them. First, I want you to remember the foundational issue. Second, I want you to remember the leadership issue. And last, I want you to remember the human dignity issue. The foundational issue, science being built on top of the foundation of the Christian worldview. The leadership issue, meaning many leaders in science hold to the Christian worldview. And then thirdly, the human dignity issue, meaning science without Christianity actually undermines human dignity. Those are the three key issues. That's what I want to talk to you about today. And then when I'm done, I want to look at Colossians chapter 1. So that's where we're headed. Before we do that, why don't we pray together? Heavenly Father, we just pause for a second to bow our heads and close our eyes because uh, we want to humble ourselves before you. We're interested in truth. We're interested in, in knowing um, what you've revealed to us, and for that we need open ears, open eyes, open hearts. And Lord, I just pray for my brothers and sisters today who might be here struggling. I pray that they'd feel welcome here as they go down the discovery tunnel and uh, figure out the story of reality that they would like to give their lives to. May you be at work in a powerful way. And for all of us, would you equip us to be better stewards, always being prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks for the reason, for the hope that is within us, but yet uh, let us do that with gentleness and respect. Uh, we ask that for Christ's sake and for his reputation, we pray. Amen. 
Okay, number one, the foundational issue. In this first point, I want to address something rather philosophical in that a lot of people see science and Christianity as being sort of incompatible with one another. I want to argue instead that science is actually built on top of the Christian worldview. Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin, in her excellent book, Confronting Christianity, points out that Dr. Hans Halverson of Princeton University argues that not only did Christians throughout history invent science, but the reason they invented science was because they saw in the scriptures a creator God who was both rational and free. In other words, when they looked around at nature, they saw a God who provided order, a God who provided and created principles which governed the universe such that we as his creatures might actually be able to discern those things. This is called in science the uniformity of nature, that nature is uniform and can be trusted to behave in predictable ways. Since God is free, though, he could have done this however he wanted to, so the only way to find out what those underlying rules are is to go out and look, to go out and do some science. And so this is the very essence of what science is. It was built on top of a Christian framework, on top of a Christian foundation. Science is based upon the fact that we believe there are laws in nature created by God that will not change, like, for example, the laws of gravity. This is because God has told us that these laws will not change, and he has put them into existence. We believe, according to Malachi, God is immutable. He doesn't change. We believe he's told us in Genesis chapter 8 that he's given laws of nature that have fixed patterns, and uh, springtime and harvest time will continue as long as the earth remains. Science assumes that these things will work the same way again and again and again. That's why we can measure things. That's why we can draw conclusions through induction. Anytime we engage in a scientific experiment, we are assuming the laws of science are working, and we are assuming that they are going to continue to work. But if there is no God who has fixed these laws, why would we assume that these laws are unchangeable? This is what philosopher David Hume called the problem of induction. It is impossible to assume that. Now, I'm not saying that non-Christians can't do science. Of course they can, and many of them do great science. What I am saying is that when they do, they have no justification for their assumptions. They cannot account for them. They are simply borrowing from the worldview of Christianity, the very preconditions for intelligibility, but without acknowledging it. In other words, they are trespassing onto our worldview, stealing stuff, and bringing it into their worldview. Science can prove a lot of things, but it cannot, one thing science cannot prove are the fundamental assumptions of science. These things can only be assumed if there's a God who's both rational and free and has set up his universe in such a way that these laws exist and that we as his creatures can accurately perceive them through empiricism, that's through our senses, and through rationalism, that's through our reason. You might remember that we learned this verse from Colossians chapter 2 last week. Paul says this, in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, I know this is a little philosophical. This first point is a little philosophical. It's kind of hard to understand, but just try to track with me here, okay? Dr. Cornelius Van Til of Westminster Seminary uh, used to popularize this argument. He called it the transcendental argument for God. What this argument says is that unless you start with God, you are left with complete uncertainty, not just in science, but in all of life, because you cannot necessarily depend on your empirical observations. Those may not be reliable. Your senses sometimes pull tricks on you, right? You cannot either depend on your reason, as sometimes your reason is flawed as well. Meaning, if you disconnect from God, you are disconnecting not just from your creator, not just from your redeemer, but you are also disconnecting from your ability to know anything for certain at all. 
In other words, the transcendental argument for God doesn't conclude that God exists. Rather, it actually says you have to start with God as a presupposition who makes knowledge possible or else you can't really know anything at all. Van Til used to have people come up to him and they'd say, you know, Dr. Van Til, prove to me that God exists. And he would say the sure proof that God exists is that without him you can't prove anything else. And so he would argue from the position, he called it the impossibility of the contrary. Now the scriptures actually teach this. Proverbs chapter 1 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Colossians 2, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden where? In Christ. This is the starting point. This is the foundation of science. Johannes Kepler used to say, when we do science, we are thinking God's thoughts after him. And so this is my first point. My point is this. You need to remember that Christians are the ones who invented modern science, put a foundation underneath of it, not as an alternative hypothesis to a creator God, but rather because they believed in the creator God who is both rational and free. Science is built on top of the Christian worldview. We have a foundation upon which science can be built. On Christ, the solid rock, we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Jesus didn't just die to forgive you of your sins. He also came, lived, died, and rose so that he could also redeem your reason today. That's point number two. Science is actually built on top of the Christian worldview. Okay, that's the philosophy lessons over. Let's now take a look at the second point here, the leadership issue. Many leaders in science hold to the Christian worldview. It's a verifiable fact that Christians have always been leaders in science in the past and today. Yet some of the loudest, most obnoxious voices in science are anti-theists like Richard Dawkins. Here's a quote from his book, The God Delusion. He looks around at the universe, and this is what he says. The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. Now, other scientists, like Dr. Stephen Meyer, look at the same world. They see incredible evidence for design and fine-tuning, but that is not allowed in the worldview of naturalistic materialism. In this worldview, if you read Dawkins and Harris and you know, Hitchens and the New Atheists, you get the impression that the history of science and Christianity has been filled with triumphant atheist scientists always beating down these knuckle-dragging Christian faith people. Friends, that is a very distorted view of history. That is inaccurate and it is very misleading. While it's true that there were some leaders in the Catholic Church who were on the wrong side of truth in Galileo's conception of the universe, what many people don't realize or acknowledge is that there was true Christians on both sides of that argument at the time. And the truth is, Christians have always been at the forefront of science. When you consider history and think about scientists like Roger Bacon or William of Ockham, these were Franciscan friars who laid the very foundation for science as we know it and as we talk about it today. Robert Boyle of Boyle's Law was a devout Christian heavily involved in Bible translation and evangelism. Lord Kelvin, also a committed believer. I was going over my notes this week with a few scientists at our church. There's a gentleman who has a PhD in chemi chemical engineering, and he said, don't forget to mention the other two. I said, okay, who? He said, Leonard Euler, the most prolific mathematician in all of history. He was what we would consider to be an evangelical Christian. And then Carl Linnaeus invented the binomial naming system. He's considered the father of modern taxonomy. He's also a committed Christian. 
Again, Dr. McLaughlin points out in her book that Albert Einstein had on his wall three portraits of his three favorite scientists. He had on his wall these three portraits. Let me put them on the screen. Newton, Maxwell, and Faraday. Isaac Newton, very serious believer in a creator God. He wrote more about theology than he did about science. Maxwell, he's known for the unification of physics. He was also an evangelical Presbyterian. He was an elder in his church. Faraday, known for his work on electromagnetism, deeply passionate about his Christian faith. These are all very committed believers, all also extraordinary scientists. Now think about this. From the perspective of Albert Einstein, when he looks back over the last few hundred years of science, these are his top three. These are his three guys that he chose to put on his wall as his scientific heroes, all very serious Christians. Probably one of the most top scientific schools in the world today is MIT. Did you know there are literally dozens of professors at MIT who are serious Christians? Some of them who came from Christian backgrounds, others of them who were saved later on in life. That's not a complete list behind me. I emphasize this because young people today, if you're like me and you grew up in the public school of New Jersey, you have no idea that these intellectual giants are committed Christians. You have no idea of that. Last week I was talking with a cardiologist who attends here at NBC who recommended that I go look into the work of Dr. James Tor. I'm really glad I did. Thanks, Doc, if you're watching. He's a synthetic organic chemist. He studied at Syracuse, did his PhD work at Purdue and postdoctoral training at Stanford. He's an inventor with a bunch of pat patents. He works in nanotechnology, like little tiny machines. He was named one of the most world, uh, he was named among the world's most influential scientific minds by Thomas Reuters, sciencewatch.com. In fact, here's some homework. Just go to YouTube, type in James Tor, and I encourage you to type in James Tor, Origin of Life, and watch, watch one of his videos. You'll feel smarter after watching James Tor for like five minutes. Just, just watch that guy, just really brilliant. His basic critique of naturalistic materialism has to do with the origin of life and the human cell. And specifically, he works in the field of organic synthesis. And so he looks at the cell and he goes, how did this happen? How did we get this? The cell is an amazing, amazing machine. It is not just a blob of protoplasm, which is what Darwin thought as he looked in his microscope. It is like a miniature factory. It has a lipid bilayer. It has all these substructures inside, little areas where they make energy. And he says, here's the question. How do you make something like this? You got all these molecules. You got all these chemicals. And Dr. Torres says, I'll even give you all the chemicals that you need. Tell me what you need. I'll give you what you need. He said, I'll give you the carbohydrates. I'll give you the nucleic acids. I'll give you the amino acids. I'll give you all the lipids. I'll give you all the molecules that you want. You go ahead and Give me your dream team of scientists. Get the 50 smartest scientists together and see if you guys can assemble one cell. Can you do it? No. Nobody's ever done this. Today, it has never been done. We are far, 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 far away from anybody being able to do this. There is no model for this. We do not have a mechanism for this. It has not been done. In fact, when pressed about this issue, the origin of life issue, trying to get from molecules to living cells, you will notice that even the most well-known proponents of naturalistic materialism begin to stutter at this point. If you've ever seen the movie Expelled with Ben Stein, you might recall there's this one scene where he's interviewing Richard Dawkins about the origin of life, and he's kind of pressing him. Let me just remind you what happened in that scene. Let's play this clip. So you have no idea how it started? No, no. No, no, no has anybody. Nor has anyone else. 
What do you think is the possibility that, there, that intelligent design might turn out to be uh, the answer to some issues in uh, genetics or in, well, in evolution? It could come about in the following way. It could be that uh, at some earlier time, somewhere in the universe, a civilization e evolved by probably some kind of Darwinian means to a very, very high level of technology and designed a form of life that they seeded onto perhaps this, this planet. Um, now, th that is a possibility and an intriguing possibility. Mm -hmm. And I suppose it's possible that you might find evidence for that if you look at the, um, at the detail, details of biochemistry, molecular biology, you might find a signature of some sort of designer. Wait a second. Richard Dawkins thought intelligent design might be a legitimate pursuit? Um, and that designer could well be a higher intelligence from elsewhere in the universe. Well, but that higher intelligence would itself have had to have come about by some explicable or ultimately explicable process. It couldn't have just jumped into existence spontaneously. That's the point. So Professor Dawkins was not against intelligent design, just certain types of designers, such as God. How did we get... Did you catch that? His explanation for the origin of life was aliens. Is there any evidence for these aliens? Not unless you talk to some really strange people. But even if there was evidence of aliens, that just leads us to another question, right? How did they supposedly get the first life? That doesn't solve the problem. That just kicks the can backwards a little farther. What kind of force or power is necessary to bring about life, to bring life from non-life? I submit to you this morning the story of Christianity begins with that answer. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 simply states as a matter of fact, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Right here in this one verse, there's an explanation for the worldview that we hold and an explanation for everything, time, space, and matter. In the beginning, time, the heavens, space, the earth, matter. And here, right in the middle, is our God, our creator, as the great uncaused cause, the great creator of all. I was speaking with another scientist in our church this week who works for Bell Labs who said, well, how about the evidence that exists for the, natural, for the supernatural world that we find even in the natural world? Things like our own self-awareness, things like our own self-consciousness, things like our innate sense of morality, like our, our conscience. Where does that come from? Or things like the existence of supernatural phenomena, like miracles, signs, and wonders. These don't have natural explanations, and most doctors, if you press them, will say in their practice that they would acknowledge that they've seen uh, miraculous things occur that they don't have medical explanation for. All of these things are like puzzle pieces that do not fit into the puzzle of naturalistic materialism. If your puzzle doesn't have all the pieces, that's a sign that your worldview is deficient. But when we look at the world, we see evidence for God all around us. You see, some people only look for God in, in the supernatural, but really the scriptures teach us that we don't just need to see miracles and signs and wonders to see evidence for God. Instead, the Bible teaches that literally everything we see around us is all evidence for God. For example, my wife and I have three children. And each pregnancy, as the baby grew inside my wife, it was beyond amazing. Now, technically, 
childbirth is not considered to be a miracle in the sense that something occurs in the supernatural realm that transcends the ordinary laws of nature. Next slide, please. But to us, when we first looked at our newborn children, precious as they were and are, we couldn't help but to stand in awe of this creator God who had gifted us with life, a God who could make such things or make such people happen. There are miracles in the human body everywhere. It was hard to choose an example, but I just wanted to choose one, and so today I'll talk to you about the human eye. Did you know that way back in the womb, when you were a little tiny uh, child in the womb, a million optic nerve endings left the optic nerve ending in your brain, and they went looking for a million optic nerve endings in your eye, one million looking for one million. And when they met, in that moment in time, you had sight for the first time. Though in that moment, you did not know that because you had a piece of skin completely covering your eyeball. But then mysteriously, around the sixth month, there almost was like a little perforation that opens this piece of skin in a perfectly straight line, and you experience separated eyelids for the very first time. And you could open your eyes, and you could see even in the womb. Dr. Ming Wang is an ophthalmologist and a world-renowned eye surgeon. He was born in China. He used to be the director of the Vanderbilt Laser Vision Center, and then he founded his own laser vision center, the Wang Vision Institute, in 2002. He, he first began to question everything that he was taught in China, all of his atheism, when he was a student at Harvard. And here is what he said. He said, the more I learned about science, the more, not less, evidence I saw of God's creation and design. He went on to say, for example, as I was becoming an ophthalmologist and learning more about the inner workings of the eye, the amazing and logical workings of the photoreceptors, ganglion cells, and neurons, I realized there is absolutely no way that an intricate structure such as a human eye could ever evolve from a random compilation of cells. The very complexity of the human eye is, in fact, he said, for him, the most powerful evidence of the existence of God. Amen. That's just the eye. This is one of the leading scientists in the world today, and he's not alone. Now, as a pastor, if I could just make a theological point about this for a moment, you and your eyes and everything that's involved in your physical body are nothing short of a miracle sitting in your seat, sitting in this room today. Our, world, our worldview teaches us that the God of the heavens is the one who knit you together in your mother's womb. Our God made you, and he knows you. He knows the hairs on your head, and he knows you by name, and you belong to him. And he says, I hold you in my right hand, and I will never let you go. He created you, and you belong to him. Amen. Do you realize how wonderfully complex you are? It was Augustine who said, men go abroad to wonder at the height of mountains, the huge waves of the sea, the long course of the rivers, the vast compass of the ocean, the circular motion of the stars, but they pass by themselves, and they don't even notice. Friends, the human body proclaims the excellence of our creator, majestic God. Many leaders in the scientific field would agree with that statement. 
Number three. Number three, science without Christianity actually undermines human dignity. Let me just kind of lighten the mood a little bit. It's kind of heavy in here, mostly my fault. Let me just give you an example from a book, The Berenstein Bears. How many of you parents are familiar with this book? Okay, Berenstein Bears, right? Can't go wrong, right? Or maybe you might want to take a second look. The Berenstein Bears are like a, like a funnel towards atheism, I found out. Take a look at this one particular book, The Bears Nature Guide. Uh, the Bears Nature Guide is kind of explaining some things, and the, the, the parent bears are explaining some things to their little cubs, and they say, nature is all around you. The birds, the trees, the shore, the sea, nature is you. Nature is me. And then you flip over to the last page, and it says, nature is all there is, all there was, and all there will be. Do you see the worldview being taught in this children's book? It reminds me of that old TV show that used to begin, the cosmos is all there is, all there was, and all there will be. That was Carl Pagan. I mean, Carl Sagan. Sorry about that. <laughs> in, in all seriousness, as parents, our children are forming their worldviews, and this is the kind of thing that contributes to their thinking. Let me give you another articulation of the worldview of naturalistic materialism from everybody's favorite celebrity TV educator, Bill Nye, the science guy. Now, for my oldest daughter, this guy was held out in her school classroom as like the face of science in her grade school years. He's dynamic, he's fun, he's funny, he has a real gift for teaching. His worldview, is really dangerous. In the last minutes of his 2010 Humanist of the Year acceptance speech, Nye, speaking for science and all of humanity, delighted the American Humanist Association with this quote, saying, quote, I am insignificant. I am just another speck of sand. And the earth, really in the cosmic scheme of things, is another speck. And the sun, an unremarkable star. And the galaxy is a speck. I, I'm a speck on a speck, orbiting a speck, among other specks, among still other specks, in the middle of specklessness. I stink. Only he didn't use the word stink. Bill Nye's audience laughed approvingly, no doubt because they believed when he said, I stink, what he really meant at the end there was that religion stinks, and any worldview that would tell you that there's some sort of importance or dignity to human beings stinks. Word to the wise, parents. Watch out for Bill Nye the science guy. He's not even a scientist, by the way. But is this really science? Or is this an atheistic dogma masquerading as science? Today's media love this sort of thing. But what kind of message about human dignity does this send? Where does this worldview lead us? What are the implications for this worldview? Not only do those who hold this idea not see any moral fabric to the universe, they don't see human beings as any more significant than any other highly evolved animal. They don't agree with Psalm chapter 8 that says that we've been crowned with glory and honor. They, they, they think from this worldview that there's nothing unique about us as, as image bearers of God. We are a cosmic accident. We are insignificant. We are a speck. We are stardust. We are simply ugly, giant bags of mostly water. Where does that worldview lead? 
Remember, we said worldviews take us somewhere. Pastor Bob said last week, we, be, we behave according to what we believe. How might we behave if this is what we really believe? Well, Ingrid Newkirk, the co-founder of PETA, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, says things like this. There is no rational reason for saying that a human being has special rights. A rat is a pig, is a dog is a boy. Wow. Dr. Rebecca McLaughlin says, as you get to know some of these thinkers, you realize that they don't just not believe in God. They don't believe in human beings either. What great violence and evil might come out of a worldview like this? If we just rewind the clock to the first half of the 20th century, there is ample evidence of where this worldview of naturalistic materialism will lead. You'll recall the Holocaust and the eugenics and the kind of racism that existed just a hundred years ago during World War II. Why? Because of the belief that some of us were less evolved than others. Have you ever read the full title of Charles Darwin's book, The Origin of Species? Let me put it on the screen for you. On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or the preservation of favored races in the struggle of life. That doesn't seem to me to be very woke. Now, of course, this is not true at all. The human genome is practically identical across all races, but yet this was the scientific thinking just 100 years ago. Have you ever heard the thought that at least one of the reasons why racism persisted in the West as long as it persisted was because in school we actually taught our kids that it was true? Now here are the theological implications for this worldview. Here are the big problems. Here is the big issue. If someone has told you that there is no God, that there is no creator, that there is no designer, there is no builder, I believe the Christian worldview would say, you have been robbed. You have been robbed of any transcendent meaning. You have been robbed of your humanity when your society tells you that you are nothing more than stardust or a highly evolved animal, and that when you die, you just simply cease to exist, that you came from nothing and that you're going to nothing, that nothing you really do is going to matter one way or, or the other in the final analysis. You are being robbed. You're being robbed of your birthright as a creature who's been made in the image of Almighty God. Amen. Don't you see how these puzzle pieces are supposed to fit together? If you don't have the origins piece, it's going to affect the meaning piece. It's going to affect the morality piece. If, if pieces of your puzzle are not there, that's a good sign that your worldview is somehow deficient. The Christian worldview provides answers to these questions that are satisfying and compelling. But if you rip Christianity out from the foundations of science, then you and I are just ugly, giant bags of mostly water. It completely undermines any sense of meaning, any sense of purpose, any sense of dignity in our lives. Science without Christianity is dehumanizing. Thankfully, this is not our story. This is not the true story of reality. This, this is not the story that you want to base your life on. Now, I want to give you the most powerful evidence against the view of naturalistic materialism.
it is not so much anything as much as it is a person. The, the most powerful evidence against the view of naturalistic materialism is the person of Jesus Christ. He is the focal point where the natural world and the supernatural world actually touch together. He is the, he is the point where the, the supernatural enters into the realm of the natural, and he is where the immaterial begins to touch with the material. Why should you believe in the Christian worldview? This morning, I want to offer you two words, Jesus Christ. Ladies and gentlemen, the most compelling reason to believe in Christianity is the person of Jesus Christ. The best reason I believe there is to embrace the Christian worldview is the person of Jesus Christ. Look at Colossians chapter 1. Let me read it again for you. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things. And in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that everything, in everything, he might have the supremacy, so that he might have the preeminence, so that he might be at the top. Colossians chapter 1 is so amazing. Right here, maybe more than anywhere else in Scripture, we see how God highlights the supremacy and the sufficiency of His one and only Son, Jesus Christ. We see some incredible, absolutely incredible truth here. Jesus is actually the originator of everything, meaning as we look around at the universe, whether through a telescope or whether through a microscope, we realize that everything that exists exists because of Jesus Christ. He's the very agent of all creation. Jesus is not just a first century rabbi who went around telling cute parables and doing good things and telling you to love your neighbor. No, Jesus is the originator of the entire universe. This is his world. You are breathing his air. When God spoke and the universe came into existence, Jesus spoke and the universe came into existence. You say, what does this matter to me? I'm not into science and I'm, all, I'm not into that stuff, Pastor Dave. The reason why all that matters to you is because the question of origins is tied to every other big question in your life. Why am I here? What is my purpose? Where am I headed? Do I have any meaning? This text is where you start. Colossians chapter 1 is where you start. And it starts with the question of origins. Yes, you matter. Why? Because you were created on purpose, with a purpose, by the person of Jesus Christ. He imagined you, and he created you. He breathed life into you. And why are you here? All things exist through him, and they are for him. In him, all things have, in, in, he has the supremacy over all things. It is all about him. So if you're living your life, and he's not at the very center of your life, then you're living your right life in a way that is dysfunctional and will not operate correctly. You were designed uniquely in such a way that you would glorify him and enjoy him forever. That is why you were made. He's also where you find your dignity. He's where you find your value. He's where you find your moral compass. He's where you find your significance. He's where you find out why you're here. Why are you here? So that you can know him and glorify him with your life. Notice verse 18. In him all things hold together. That means that Jesus didn't just create the world and then go off and, you know, leave it alone and do something else. No, it says he's not just the creator. He's also the sustainer. He holds all things together. He's holding all things together right at this very moment. He's holding us together. He's present. He's active in his own creation, even right now. And he's not just our creator, and he's not just our sustainer. There's one more thing we need to learn in Colossians chapter 1. He is also our peacemaker. 
Take a look with me at verse 19. It says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. And here, friends, is the most amazing thing of all, that this great creator God that we've talked about, who made everything, looks to you and he looks to me and he says, I made you, I love you, and though you rebelled against me, I'm going to enter into my own creation. I'm going to take on human flesh, and I'm going to die so that our fellowship with each other can be made right again. I'm going to make peace between you and me once again. How? Through my own blood. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the true story of reality. So, like all of the rest of creation, we too will praise God for his majesty and his glory and his creative power and all of his might. But as human beings, we also get to praise God for his mercy. And we uniquely praise God for his grace. And we as his human beings also praise God for his unconditional love. This is the story of reality. This is the better story. This is the story I encourage you to believe in. Why should you reject the popular view of naturalistic materialism? Sure, because science was built on top of the Christian worldview. Yes, because many leaders in science hold to the Christian worldview today. Yes, because science without Christianity undermines human, human dignity. But most of all, because you were created and redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, and you should live for him. From an atheistic perspective, friends, you are nothing but an ugly, giant bag of mostly water. But from a Christian perspective, in him, all things were created. All things have been created through him and for him, him and in him, all things hold together. That's a good story. As the worship team comes to lead us in one more song, I just want to tell you one more story. I want to share with you the story of a scientist who first heard this story of reality and it changed his whole life. Possibly he's the most influential scientist today in America. His name is Dr. Francis Collins. He was the head of the Human Genome Project. Now he's the national director of the Institute of Health. You're probably familiar with him. What you may not know is that he grew up as a, as a non-Christian. And he pursued med school and all of his physician training uh, outside of the Christian worldview, outside of the Christian faith. And then when he became a doctor, he observed something. He said, I began to observe a lot of human suffering. And in his patients, he saw that those of his patients who came from a Christian perspective, they had this unique ability to cope with suffering. And those who came from a non-Christian worldview did not seem to have that same ability to do so. So one time he was treating a woman who was in great pain. And as she was suffering, she was simply crying out for mercy in the name of Jesus. And while he was treating her, she asked him one question. She said, Dr. Collins, what do you believe? Dr. Collins, what do you believe? Dr. Collins, what, what do you believe? And, and he had no idea how to answer that question. He had never even really thought about the question. In his book, The Language of God, he said, my face went flush. I stammered, stammered out some words such as, like, I'm not really sure, and I got out, of that, got out of that room as fast as I could. And Dr. Collins realized he had never actually looked at any evidence for God. 
This one patient's simple question set him on a journey, an exploration journey that eventually led to him giving his life over and surrendering his life to Jesus Christ. He's now a committed Christian. He believes the God of the genome is the God of the Bible. And you know what struck me about that testimony? Although it's amazing and Dr. Collins is amazing, what struck me is that patient of his. Because maybe you're not going to grow up and be the next Dr. Collins, but that patient had no idea who she was talking to. That patient, all, all she was doing was suffering and doing it well with faith in Jesus Christ publicly. And all she did was ask him one question. Did she know that she was talking to the next big future Francis Collins? No. She was simply living out her story of reality with faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, may I encourage you, when you do that, God will use you in amazing and powerful ways. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for not only the evidence that points to your clear existence and your majesty in all of creation, but we thank you most of all that you're not just our creator, that you're also our redeemer. The Father, you sent your Son, Jesus Christ, to take on human flesh, to die for the sins of this world, and that through faith in him, through trust in him, we might have peace with you again, that we might be reconciled with our creator so that we might again join the song of creation which praises you for your glory and your creative ability and your majesty that we see everywhere we look, but also we get to praise you for your mercy and for your love and for your grace. And we get to say, worthy is the lamb who was slain. He purchased us and brought us back unto himself. We thank you, God, for your great work as creator and also as Redeemer. We worship you and lift you high in this place in Jesus' name. Amen.